Welcome to the Matt Goodwin Subcast. It's good to have you with us. This is a subscriber-supported platform, so do consider supporting us at mattgoodwin.substack.com and feel free to connect with me direct on Twitter at GoodwinMJ. We hope you enjoy today's subcast. Welcome, everybody, back to the subcast. And this week, I'm delighted to be joined by Ivar Arpi from Sweden. I'll let him introduce himself in a second, but let me just tell you, I wanted him on the show because he has, I think more than anybody, an intimate understanding of what's been going on, not only in Swedish politics, but in in Europe. And I've been following him for quite a while. So Ivar, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here, Matt. And um, I I recently interviewed you uh, in my podcast uh, for my uh, Swedish listeners. So it's uh, I'm delighted to be here and talk to your your audience. Well, thanks for joining us. And I I just want to get stuck in. I mean, look, lots of Brits have been watching European politics closely over the last couple of years or so as we've come out of COVID. And it's quite clear, certainly to me at least, that the narrative that COVID was basically going to uh, blow a hole in populism has, you know, completely um, not worked out. I mean, you look at France with Marine Le Pen, you look at Italy with Georgia Maloney, you look at Sweden um, with Sweden Democrats. Um, it's been a reminder to me that the sort of drivers of, of national populism are are still very persistent and I think stronger than than people appreciate. So just... Just give us your headline view on the Sweden Democrats have come from, you know, they're fairly marginal position to to coming second at the most recent election. Sweden, to me, from the outside, looks like it's being upended. There seems to be a moment. There seems to be something happening in Swedish politics. And I think that's probably going to tell us a bit about Europe more generally. So just give us your headline thoughts on what what's happening in Sweden. Yes. One thing you have to bear in mind with the Sweden Democrats is that they uh, as you say they've been they were very marginal for a very long time uh, and so even when they entered the the parliament in 2010 uh, they were a small party uh, but from from then until now all the rest of the parties had uh, basically decided that we will have a cordon sanitaire, we will not uh, deal with them, uh, we will not cooperate with them, we won't talk with them. And what shifted was after the election in 2018 when the Social Democratic Party, uh, which is still the largest party in Sweden, um, they decided that uh, they managed to form an an alliance with uh, two of the liberal, socially liberal parties, Centre Party and uh, the Liberal Party. And uh, that ended the right-wing coalition. So basically what that told uh, the two parties that were left of the old alliance, the right-wing alliance that had ruled Sweden between 2006 and 2014, was that if we are going to, uh, be uh, be able to win elections and uh, um, have power uh, and influence, we need to cooperate with the Sweden Democrats in some form. And that was the moderate party and the Christian Democrats. And the moderate party is uh, traditionally the liberal conservative party. It, it, it's traditionally the second largest party in Sweden. And the Christian Democrats are more, more of a, it's a small party. Uh, it's been balancing on the 
threshold to uh, to being kicked out of parliament and for a long time but uh, they've always managed to uh, to stay in parliament so basically that's when they started talking to the Sweden Democrats but what you miss what one can miss here is that even though the Sweden Democrats have been controversial as a party and they have had many scandals as many of the national populists uh, in Europe has had as well like uh, representatives saying uh, weird stuff, racist stuff, and being sometimes incompetent because they lack uh, experience. But the the positions of the Sweden Democrats, uh, uh, stricter migration, uh, tougher on on crime, and uh, a more skeptical view on... um, the, the the climate policies that Sweden has been uh, known for in the, in the past, those views have been uh, become mainstream in Sweden uh, to a large degree in the last few years. So even while you main the parties, the main parties, while they maintain the cordon sanitaire, they started sounding like the Sweden Democrats. So the Social Democrats. So so this is what makes the Swedish situation a little bit. Uh, special i think is that the social democrats in sweden they have uh tried to sound as much as the sweden democrats while maintaining the cordon sanitaire and saying that you cannot cooperate with them uh and uh, it used to be the same way with the right-wing parties but now they actually cooperate with the sweden democrats so now that the government uh which is an, an the government is a three-party government it's the moderate party the christian democrats and the liberal party who shifted back to uh the right-wing uh, side of the of the uh of politics and they are supported by the sweden democrats but the sweden democrats are not part of the government but uh many of the policies that they are are now going to act on uh, are of course influenced by the sweden democrats but actually a lot, a lot of them are also positions that they've they've been holding uh, for a long time now. So there is a shift that we have a new government that is supported by Sweden Democrats, but the shift in opinions and the shift in sentiments in the population and among the parties that shift took place uh, over over the years. But 2015 with the migration crisis. Uh, was one of the most decisive moments when it came to changing the views in these uh, in these issues. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, when I look at when I look at Sweden and listen to what you say, I mean, some things obviously have always been somewhat unique. You know, Sweden historically was one of the countries that we were told would not have a successful populist party. Even though I, I remember in the early two thousands reading lots of papers at the time by Swedish academics who were saying that actually you know, the demand for national populism was beginning to emerge in Swedish society. I think even before the refugee crisis, there were lots of disillusioned workers, the cultural dimension in politics was starting to become more important. And then, you know, fast forward to where we are today, and you can sort of see how this is sort of burst out into into the open. I mean, mm. who's who's actually voting for the Sweden Democrats? Because if you look across Europe, the basic story is non-graduates, workers, small towns away from the cities, culturally conservative, not old white men really anymore. Le Pen, Maloney, um, Vox in Spain, they've you know, basically got a fairly even 
distribution in 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 age, um, drawing their support, you know, often from younger middle aged people. I mean, what's the story in Sweden? Who's actually who's actually propelling the national populist Sweden Democrats into the mainstream? Uh, so I think what what makes national populism so hard to counter for uh, the main the the older parties is that they are uh, catch-all parties so and you can see that with the Sweden Democrats is that they capture votes from basically all walks of life and uh, even though you can of course the the pattern is basic uh, overall what you what you just uh, outlined there is uh, education is one uh, determining factor so the longer education you have the more left-wing you are and 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 that is true in the United States and uh, it's true in Sweden, uh, and and so, uh, but income is not as uh, as a, a big determining factor. So even both low income and high income people vote for Sweden Democrats. Uh, one of the main dividing lines is uh, that's starting to emerge in Sweden just now uh, over the last two elections is that our cities are turning becoming more left wing. And uh, the the countryside is becoming more Sweden Democrats and right wing and conservative. Uh, so th- that 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 is something that's actually kind of new in Sweden. It used to be that Stockholm, for example, was one of the few blue cities in uh, Europe. Uh, but now the Social Democrats have made inroads, um, basically in the affluent affluent areas um and uh, upper classes and uh, uh, highly educated people and uh, so so that is a shift hey, can i uh, just ask you a quick question about that we had uh, yeah. paulina noiding on the podcast and um she made the point that one of the issues that's basically transformed swedish politics has not just been migration but crime and that you've had this sort of escalating wave of crime in Swedish society, the sort of humiliation robberies, the gang violence, and suggested at least that often, um, you know, parents in Sweden are be- beginning to sort of worry about the security of their children. And this, this sort of helped to explain why the Sweden Democrats have been able to break through. And to be honest, when I read about the violence in parts of Sweden. Um, and when I was talking with, with Paulina about it, I, I was actually quite shocked that this is not a bigger story outside of Sweden. I mean, it to me, it seems as though the country has lost control of um, of, of certain neighbourhoods and, and the scale of violence. I mean, do you buy that? Can you talk through the, the role of crime and, and migration in this story? Yeah, of course. Of course, I I agree with uh, Paulina in that picture. Uh, um, I I think crime is also a proxy for migration for a lot of people. So, crime is wh- when you talk about crime in Sweden, there's a you you cannot ignore the the fact that uh, most of the organized crime is very immigrant heavy, um, dominated by different immigrant groups. And you have uh, clan clan structures sometimes uh, formal clan structures imported from Somalia, for example, uh, that function that become crime syndicates in, in Sweden. Uh, and you have looser um, like uh, friend 
friend gangs uh, who grew grew up together more in an American style uh, ghetto style that you <laughs> you you know each other and you start committing smaller crimes and then you graduating crime uh, to advance your career and then you become more for, more of a formal gang uh, later on. Um, but what goes through many of these uh, the whole issue of crime is that it's also an issue of migration so many of the people have very weak um weak ties to sweden and they they are on the periphery of sweden. they grow up in the periphery of all the swedish system in these downtrodden areas uh they many of them don't learn to speak swedish correctly or uh, very well and they have a hard time in school Uh, so that has been like the whole migration, um, the fact that Sweden has Im- imported so many people uh, on, so in, during a very short period of time, and it's been very hard for these people to be integrated into Swedish uh, the Swedish society. Th- that is fueling uh, some of the crime. Uh, so the, I think that crime is the is the main issue now not migration but you cannot it's very hard to separate the issues really uh, because if you don't uh, find a better more normal level of migration to Sweden as, and with normal i mean more similar to our nordic neighbors for example then it will be very hard to fight crime uh, in Sweden because you need to be police need to be able to establish relationships with people and if there's always new people coming in and uh, and uh, disturbing the balance of power and and, um, and coming with new new problems then it's very hard to keep up we're just looking at the sort of the right in general in sweden i mean how how has the, the traditional center right tried to respond because if you look at britain obviously one of boris johnson's successes um in many ways was neutralizing the populist challenge. I mean, he essentially in 2019 hoovered up about 85% of people who had voted for Nigel Farage. He did that by campaigning on Brexit, migration, to some extent crime, but that wasn't really so much of an issue. But but basically the, the centre-right Conservative Party cannibalised the populist vote, basically, and that in turn reshaped the Conservative Party around this much more working class, non-graduate, older electorate which now is rapidly losing uh losing any love it had for the conservative party but how has the center right in sweden tried to respond to the rise of uh sweden democrats since ulf kristersson the 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 current uh, prime minister of sweden and uh, party leader of the moderate party uh since he got elected as party leader Uh, he's been uh, changing the policy towards sweden democrats i mean now he's cooperating with them Uh, and his predecessors were very skeptical of the Sweden Democrats, and uh, his uh, the, his uh, recent pre- predecessor Anna Simbergbatra, she she opened up to talks with Sweden Democrats, but then she backtracked when she got very a lot of criticism for it. But it's been hard for the established parties in Sweden because the view is that many of them are complicit in the situation because because of the cordon sanitaire. Uh, so there's a if you compare it to Denmark, for example, uh, where the Social Democratic Party realized 
a long time ago that it needed a better policy or or a, a policy that resembled the Danish People's Party, uh, which is the equivalent of the Sweden Democrats in the political landscape in in Denmark. That they needed to take some of their policies to uh, uh, basically take the weapon out of their hands, uh, out of the Danish People's Party's hands, so that they couldn't bash it in the head of uh, of the Social Democrats and the, the traditional liberal. Conservative Party in Denmark, Venstre, uh, they did the same, but in Sweden, because the the main parties didn't do that, uh, and we had the migration crisis, and we've had uh, a, a rapid change in Sweden when it comes to and a deterioration when it comes to crime. It's, it's been very hard for the established parties, uh, traditional left wing and traditional right wing parties, to um, talk on these issues without being accused of. Uh, um, Okay, but what what's your responsibility uh, for the situation that we're in? Uh, and now, of course, they're in government, so now it will be uh, up to the test if they um, if they can live up to their promise now. But it's been, I, I would say, if I can just go on for a little bit longer, that it's been a lot of talk about the conservative wave in in Sweden. And uh, what basically what you see is some of the culture war issues have been more salient in Swedish debate, and uh, and also the the increasing support for the Sweden Democrats. But I would think that I would argue that that is a misreading of uh, of the landscape because we, we there's no like increase in uh, uh, I mean talks of abortion prohibiting abortions or uh, prohibition on pornography or, or uh, people should not get divorced or, or uh, m- many of these more conservative issues in other countries. We, ha- we haven't had that in Sweden. So what they base, what we, what we are calling conservatism in Sweden is basically tougher on crime, stricter migration and, uh, and not much else. And uh, I, I wouldn't, argue, I would, I wouldn't say that that is a conservative wave really. So, but I would like to ask you, Matt, if when it comes to Boris Johnson, the, if you looked at the level of support, and I know you've written on this uh, a lot, and um, the level of support for Boris Johnson and the Tory party, like a few years ago, it was just a, an amazing success story. And they broke the they broke into uh, districts where Labour had like a majority for, um, I mean, since the Second World War. Uh, and now they've just in shambles and and they've lost a lot of the voters that they gained and they've lost a lot of voters that they never that they always had uh, and why is i mean why what can I explain is that is it the fact that he campaigned Boris Johnson campaigned on being tough on migration uh, for example and what we can see in Britain now is actually an increase in migration is that part of the story what's happening there well, I think it's it's similar to your point about the collapse of conservatism in in Sweden. Um, essentially, the core problem is that the conservative party elite does not really reflect the values and the aspirations of the new conservative voters. Boris Johnson's election victory in 2019 brought the party a completely different electorate from from what David Cameron had had only four years previously. Uh, Those voters were expecting a meaningful break from the European Union. They were expecting lower immigration, not just controlled 
immigration. Um, and they were also, a, a, a big chunk of them were very critical of a political economy that was largely built around London and the commuter belt in the southeast of England, very prosperous, highly educated, quite socially liberal part mm. of the country. And so the political realignment that's been unfolding over the last decade was, I've always argued, a realignment that would favour a renewed Conservative Party. The problem, however, is that the Conservative Party has proved itself unable to renew, to to connect with that realignment. So there were certainly things that Boris Johnson did that didn't help. The Partygate scandal in Number 10 Downing Street, when he and his mm. aides were uh, found to have been holding parties during the COVID lockdowns. Then the... Um, you know, the uh, the Liz Truss regime that followed was, for lots of reasons, problematic for conservative voters. But, but you know, I, as I say to many friends of mine who are conservative MPs, you know, there is a myth about Boris Johnson, right, which is that he was the proper conservative who, who represents the future of the party. But actually, for many conservatives in Britain, Boris Johnson was not really conservative at all. He was basically quite sort of liberal cosmopolitan in how he saw the world. He liberalized the immigration system. He presided over the highest rates uh, of migration from outside of the European Union that we've had uh, for a very long time. He presided over changes that really were not focused on prioritizing the national interest over globalization. You know, he removed the requirement for British businesses to advertise jobs in Britain uh, before advertising them in other countries, you know that was a symbol for me of his sort of disinterest in in prioritizing um, the national interest, and and that helps to explain why the Conservative electorate is where it is now. I mean, Rishi Sunak is averaging this week twenty seven percent in the polls. The more radical right, if you want to call it that, the Reform Party, which is closely affiliated with Nigel Farage, although is not officially led by him. You know, that's now polling six, seven, eight percent in some polls. Um, my own polling last week had them on eight percent. That's going to cause a Conservative Party a serious problem. So I think what where I'm interested in 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 today's world and what you've just alluded to is what is conservatism in contemporary politics and why is it that conservative parties, wherever you look, you know, you look at France, um, you look at Italy, you look at um, Britain, you look at Sweden. Why is it that conservative problems have not, conservative parties have not just fallen out with many of their voters, but philosophically, they don't really seem to know who they are anymore? Hmm. Well, it's, a, it's a great, uh, it's a great question. I, I, I have not heard any proper political scientist uh, argue what I'm about to argue, but a difference between Britain and, and Sweden, of course, is that we have a proportional electoral system and you have a, a first-past-the-post um, uh, electoral system that so that favors uh, a two-party system, basically. And, and one of uh, the advantages of the Swedish system is that you have the Sweden Democrats. They are their own party. They are not just a f- faction within a larger right-wing party. So... Uh, People can feel represented by uh, the Sweden Democrats, and but those voters in United States and Britain uh, are basically have to 
uh, migrate towards the conservative party, the Republicans in in the United States and the Tory party in in Britain. And, and what's what's hard, for example, for the liberal conservative, the moderate party, and what they've been struggling with for a very long time. I mean, since the since the nineties, is that the the politicians are uh, representing the old uh, upper classes. Uh, so what what uh, one of the most successful uh, moderate party leaders Friedrich Reinfeldt who 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 uh, led the alliance of the four right wing parties between uh, 2006 and 2014 in in government what he said to his uh, uh, party members was that you should never don't wear pearl necklaces and the the youth wing of the party said that you don't show up in a suit and tie to to the meetings dress casually dress like normal people uh, uh and you don't have to tell the sweden democrats that because they are to a larger degree representatives still of the people that vote for them the politicians are from another background uh and the, <laughs> i remember when when they first entered parliament in 2010 there was a like a liberal a friend of mine liberal said like how do you know how to spot the sweden democrat uh, no, uh, yeah, they wear a ring on the on their thumb because that's a like something that working class men do in Sweden uh, sometimes. So it's been like, but but one of the um, advantages of is that you've had a separate party structure for these voters for this realignment uh, of uh, in in the electo- electorate, uh, and I, I think that that is it's harder to. It would have been much harder to uh, take over uh, the moderate party if if that was the only way for these uh, these groups, between these voters, uh, and like replace the old party elites with the new elites. So it's been easier in that way to feel represented by uh, the pop- populist, the national populist party, which I I would uh, your, that's your terminology, but I think it fits. Yeah with what uh, the Sweden Democrats actually are. Yeah. But you see, I mean, if you compare that story with Britain, for example, the, the, one of the arguments that's long been made by social and cultural conservatives in Britain, I mean, you know, for example, Peter Hitchens would be the, the symbol of this argument, if you like, a very prominent commentator in the, in the mail who has argued for longer than I can remember that essentially the fundamental problem in British politics is a Conservative Party. And until you get rid of the Conservative Party, you're never going to have a more representative politics. Mm. Um, Peter Hitchens has clearly influenced the sort of new generation of conservative writers. Um, Ed West, who you may know, one of my one of my favourite writers uh, on, on British politics, a fellow Substack, and we've had him on the, the podcast as well. Um, but fundamentally, you know, if Britain if Britain had a different electoral system, our politics would look radically different. The Labour Party would be um, broken into two. You'd have a kind of high, high sort of cosmopolitan Brahmin left, a kind of traditional old left. The Conservatives would be broken in two immediately, maybe three different parties. You'd have your Farages. You'd have your, you know, your in the UK Independence Party, the National Populists. You'd have your mm kind of hardcore libertarians, very small group represented by this trust, represent about 6% of Britain, if that. Um, you'd have your one nation liberal conservatives um, who, you know, well, 
more money spent on foreign aid are comfortable with migration and globalization. And I think for me, the tussle between the national populace and the liberal conservatives would be, would be, you know, would be a very interesting tussle to watch. Um, but under a first past the post system, that's not going to happen. So what I think we are left with is a conservative party, which all of the survey evidence shows this, all the surveys on MPs, surveys of voters. We have a conservative party that is dominated by elites who lean much further to the right on the economy and much further to the left on culture than many of their new voters. And that has really created this very unstable coalition for the party. It means that you know, Rishi Sunak is going to find it incredibly difficult to keep together, you know, that realignment that took place under Boris Johnson and and maybe a realignment that ultimately needed Brexit and Jeremy Corbyn to cement it together. Um, But it means the Conservatives are now really always going to struggle because if they've shown us anything over the last six years since the Brexit referendum, they've ultimately showed us that they don't really have that much of an interest or an understanding of the in the people who are voting for them and in trying to hold that 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 coalition together and there were glimmers of that you know Theresa May's premiership um Boris Johnson's campaign in 2019 but but basically the conservative party have really failed to lean into that realignment that that could have kept them in power despite covid um Despite yeah. the energy crisis and inflation, actually, I mean, I, I I do genuinely think that that had the party better understood its electorate, then it would have uh, had a much better chance at holding power in 2024. They should have read more Matt Goodwin. Uh, I, <clears throat> I I agree with you that that, that they, it was a and it was inspiring as well because I'm. A, I think I, I lean uh, more to the left on economic issues than uh, many of my liberal conservative friends and more to the right on cultural issues. And so uh, that that space is is wide open in uh, many many parts of Europe. It's it's been it's been uh, it's been wide open and it's being filled. And and uh, right now we have a the new government their the budget that they uh, just put forward is very <laughs> I, the, the market friendly think tank Timbro uh, the leader of that think tank Benjamin Dosa who is a, a former leader of the youth party uh, wing of the moderate party and he's uh, one of the uh, main force within the moderate party he said that he was very disappointed with the budget because it was basically a social democratic budget it was no difference it could have been uh, and I think that um, <laughs> that's one one of the reasons that it uh, th- this government will have a hard time put f- putting forward very libertarian or very uh, right wing policies because many of the voters who voted for the Sweden Democrats they expect them to deliver on promises that are more left wing um, when it comes to welfare policies, for example. Um, and so it's been very it's been paramount for the Sweden Democrats to not give in to the sort of more right wing, uh, right leaning economic policies, and and also the the example of Liz Truss, uh, of course, hangs over every government putting forward a budget right now. I mean, if you because this government, many of the the people in power, 
lean much further to the right when it comes to economic policies than the population writ large. And so many of the policies that this forward put forward, if you could, could have translated them to Swedish, uh, the Swedish situation, I think they would have liked what you did. But they saw the reaction from the markets and saw what happened and said like, okay, we are in a we're in we're in a in another situation. You cannot do these unfinanced uh, tax uh, tax cuts, for example. Um, but if but if you just just briefly, if you look at Liz Truss just for a second, mm-hmm. I mean, I've increasingly come to the view that actually Britain needed Liz Truss. British politics needed the Liz Truss experiment and. It turned out to be a very expensive experiment, but um, let me explain what I mean. Liz Truss represented a vision of Brexit that is at best a 10% vision of what Brexit is all about. Uh, It is a Davos on Thames, low regulation, low tax, London-centric, high migration model of Brexit that is basically shared by a significant chunk of the conservative elite and going into the Brexit referendum and in the aftermath of the Brexit referendum, many of those liberal leaders or Davos on Thames advocates basically dominated the debate about what Brexit was really about. But if you actually look at the Brexit voters, the vast majority of those Brexit voters had a completely different vision of what Brexit was all about. It was, you know, ultimately about reclaiming national sovereignty, lowering, not just controlling immigration, sending power, not just government departments, away from London, away from the Southeast commuter belt. It was about restoring voice for groups that have been historically marginalised in British society, voice in politics, voice in media, voice in uh, the big institutions. And it was about Ultimately, I think swinging the pendulum back towards people who have spent the last 50 years on the losing side of a liberal consensus, an economic and social liberal consensus that has served this new elite, but has ultimately marginalized everybody else. And and that vision of Brexit not only really failed to find its expression um, in the two years uh in, in, in the last two years of British politics since we've been outside of the European Union. But it's also now, I think, gone down in flames as the Conservative Party has consistently shown very little interest in representing and responding to that vision of Brexit. And so we're basically going to end up back where we were in 2012, 2013. That's my working hypothesis now. We're going to end up back with a large chunk of the country saying, none of the above, please. I don't like the left. I don't like the right. They've given me a, an economic model that is based on consumption, that is based on continued high migration. They're not investing in um, people who are not part of the university educated minority, and they're not really listening to the cultural concerns that we have. And, and that's my big concern about British politics over the next 10 years, that what started with the big three revolts of the 2010s, populism, Brexit and Boris Johnson, is now going to just steamroll into something else altogether different, and and we failed to learn our lessons. Yeah, and I I um, I think if you look in hindsight of uh, the Nigel Farage, if you look from polit- at politics from his point of view and the people close to him and who sympathise with him, he threw in the towel prematurely. <laughs> I think 
the what he represented in British politics. I, I'm, I, of course, uh, your listeners and you are are, are uh, much more knowledgeable <laughs> than I am about this, but it, he seemed like a new force, and he was a new type of politician, and he was very popular. And um, if he would have stayed on and made a run for it in the national politics, he might have, and uh, it, it might have looked different. He might have pushed the the Tories in another in another direction i'm not well, sure no, just just briefly on that because i yeah. didn't i asked him that very question once you know um, you know i think around the time of the brexit referendum and farage's philosophy his philosophy to politics has been like his philosophy in business um he likes to buy when the share price is very low and then he likes to leave politics when he feels that his share price is very high so when you basically look at his his comings and goings over the last 10 years you know his judgment has always been that if he feels that he cannot have a major impact on frontline politics he'll basically bow out as he did at the mm. 2017 general election as he did across much of the country in 2019 he made a deal with the conservatives and boris johnson and then ever since then has sort of moved into the background but but you know there's always been this looming question mark over the right of British politics, which is how long can a Conservative Party that isn't representative of many of its voters hang on? And, you know, Farage and others have always been influenced by the experiences in Canada in the early 1990s, where you had a reform party that basically replaced a Liberal Conservative Party under a first-past-the-post system. And, And that was, I think, has always been seen as something of a model for you know, these political insurgents. But as you say, in order to pull something like that off, not only do you need to remain very, very active almost all of the time, um, Mm. but you also need to have defections from the incumbent Conservative Party, something that Farage has always struggled to do. He's managed to get two defections, but but that was it. and you you need to be continuously present within the national conversation. And again, he's not really, really done that. So um, that sort of explains that part of the of the dynamic. But there will come an interesting moment um, over the next couple of years. I mean, if if I'm right in, in thinking currently that the Conservatives lose the next election and potentially lose it heavily, then we are going to enter into a very prolonged conversation about what the Conservative Party is. And what it's all about. Um, you know, is it a Liberal Conservative Party? Is it a is it a, a National Conservative Party? And I think that contrast will be sharper given the things that are happening in Europe, and also in twenty twenty four the things that are happening in America. I mean, if the Republicans do win the White House, um, that's going to, I think, again throw light on this glaring um, divergence between the British Conservatives and the American Republicans in the same way that the events in Europe um, show the very different trajectories of right-wing parties in Sweden, France, Italy and elsewhere and what's happening in Britain. I, I think also like this is um, like a little step to the uh, uh, from the discussion we're having but we are going further and further uh, away from the experiences of the Second World War so what it means to be right wing was very much formed uh, in the aftermath of uh, the Nazis, uh, crimes against humanity and the fascists in Italy. 
the phalangists of of Franco Spain, and and that made some some of the traditionally right wing positions impossible or very easily defeated in uh, in politics. And what we're seeing, I would say, in Europe is that the generations who grow up grew up either living through the Second World War or or immediately afterwards they are um, exiting politics and younger generations with no memory of of that consensus that formed after the second world war are looking at politics in new ways and uh, that that's happening in uh, that the, the charges of um, towards the right wing has always been that they are nasty and uh, so you you have to go step away from being the nasty tourists in in Britain for example and you always have to seem nicer uh, and that's been a challenge and the same goes for basically every right wing party in in Europe and uh, i think what's happening is that it's that that um, that charge or the the accusation has less of a uh, packs less of a punch. It's the way you can argue now uh, when it comes to migration, national national sovereignty, and um, and those issues. Um, it's ch- changed a lot, and it will keep changing. I'm not saying that that you will forget the the not Nazi experience, or that you will try to become like fascists, Nazis, or or something like that, but that even uh, reasonable policies and reasonable uh, right-wing uh, ideology has been uh, uh, were uh, uh, deserted after uh, the Second World War and uh, the experiences that they had there. Yeah, I think that's definitely the thesis. Um, I remember reading a book by an academic called Dan Stone, Goodbye to All That, which essentially argues that the social norms that dominated much of the post-war period are basically being steadily eroded where i would push back a little bit on that though is that they are some of those social norms are being replaced by a radical progressivism that views conservatism ultimately as fascist and as uh, equivalent to you know the german nazis and that the historical perspective if you want to call it that among a section of young millennials and zoomers particularly university educated uh millennials and zoomers arguably i would i would suggest is being lost that that you know you don't need to spend long on social media these days to find comparisons to uh, people comparing for example you know rishi sunak and jeremy hunt to you know adolf hitler and Joseph Goebbels. I mean, it's just you know, mm. it, it, people have lost perspective, and and the concepts that we use in politics, you know, racism and um, xenophobia and and terms such as far right are also, I think, steadily being expanded over time. Partly because of historical misunderstanding, but secondly because of a you know a, an attempt, direct or indirect, to stigmatize views and beliefs that are seem to be violating, you know, what John McWhorter and others would call the new religion of radical progressivism. And I think that's going to be one of the characteristics of our political debate going forward. I don't think that will create new opportunities for conservative parties. I think that's going to make it just just as hard, if not harder, 
for those parties to have room for manoeuvre uh, within a political debate that increasingly reflects the values and the interests and the beliefs of the university educated minority over everybody else. That's my working mm. assumption. You, you might you, you you have a point, and I think um, uh, um, a concept. Uh, I think uh, his, his name is Nick Haslam came up with uh, the term concept creep. And, and I, I think that's very useful to, to see how, for example, um, to how racism and to be anti-racist, it, it, it used to have sort of a fixed meaning uh, in the 80s, 90s. And now uh, racism can mean much, much more. And you can incorporate many more phenomena uh, in into that term and the same with being anti-racist which which wasn't a um it, it wasn't a big everyone was basically everyone was anti-racist who said that they were but now it's become it means much more now and it has to has many more connotations and you can see that in being in uh, right uh, white supremacy for example if you look at the the, the evolution of that um that, con- that that concept in the united states in the 90s and the, the 2000s, I would say that white supremacist was being a neo-Nazi, basically, who said believed that uh, um, the white race was better than everyone else. Uh, but now it means being a white supremacist, it might just mean that you believe in colorblind uh, meritocracy, for example. Uh, it's, it's It's been expanding. So you have that within the academia, uh, all over the Western world, but I maybe more in the in the Anglo-Saxon world, in the Anglosphere, uh, than in other parts of Europe. But you you also have it in here in here in Sweden. And um, uh, what, what what's been uh, lacking from uh, the conservative parties in um, for a long while has been a, a way to or a will to challenge on these issues uh, in the against the the woke religion so to speak uh, yeah there, there's been uh, they've been not not been rising to the challenge uh, so uh, when i started writing about the, on, on these issues in the in the early 2010s uh, many of the older more established uh, right wing uh, politicians and uh, uh, editorial writers they took me aside and said like don't don't uh, put your put yourself into the only thing uh, you will accomplish by writing on these subjects is that people will think you're misogynist racist and homophobic they were right uh, <laughs> to a degree that uh, i've been uh, uh, that's been I, I, I those labels have been used against me uh, but i would say that the only alternative uh, is to uh, challenge the the left on these issues and uh but 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 i i would say that i think that the, this is the national populist one one of the their uh, unique selling points so to speak is that they are actually interested in doing that and that has been uh, very welcome for a large part of the electorate well i mean if it um if it resonates at all i think being willing to challenge some of the sacred goals of radical progressivism is something that that does make you a lot of enemies especially if you work within the universities and i've been consistently struck at the degree of political and social intolerance expressed 
by some, not all, but some of my colleagues within the universities. I have talked at length on various podcasts and interviews over the last six years about the reaction um, among many so-called liberals to my decision to publicly accept the Brexit vote. And that put me Mm. in a minority within the universities of about 10%. But the reaction was was shrill, hysterical, um, Mm. at times openly abusive, um, very childish. Um, and to be frank, there are lots of people in the universities. Um, I don't want to single people out, but there are lots of people in the universities who basically have spent their entire lives in the universities. Um, they've never really done anything else. They've never really worked in other organizations. They've certainly never really had to debate members of the public or people who hold different political beliefs or perspectives. And in my experience, at least, um, a lot of that found its expression in the aftermath of the Brexit referendum, where, to be frank, as I say, some, not all, but some of my colleagues were childish, intolerant, abusive, um, shrill, uh, generally not nice to be around, um, and made me increasingly question not just... Um, the uh, environment that I was working in, but actually higher education more generally. And I spent more than a few years feeling deeply disillusioned with the inability of our universities to provide an environment that can ensure the next generation are going to be exposed to a range of different viewpoints and that those viewpoints will be treated as legitimate and acceptable. And mm. that that was one of the reasons why I then violated another sacred value by campaigning for academic freedom, which again, many people say, said was a fascist enterprise. But um, thankfully, we won that argument and they lost. So, you know, onwards, onwards and upwards, I guess. Yeah, we're, we're just now the, the new education minister, um, there was a documentary based on um, in in one of the big channels in Sweden, and it's based on a few cases of where academic freedom has been violated. Um, one of the cases is uh, an academic in the end of a semester, the the students got to ask all the teachers a question, and uh, one of the students asked the panel of teachers, um, like how how can you search for racism uh, in older archives? What words? How can you find find the the racism? Uh, how can you find the views there? And she said the N word, which is a different word in in Swedish than in 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 the United States. It's a very it's the derogatory derogatory uh, term, the most most derogatory there is. But in Swedish, it, it's it has another connotation. But she said you have to type that in to find that. And a student stay. They brought that up to the university level and uh, said that she was discriminating and they did an investigation and uh, they they forced her to promise to never use uh, that word again uh, in in any context. Uh, And so now, uh, to make a long story a little bit shorter, she... um, 
she was interviewed in the documentary and a, f- a few other academics and the education minister will now look into the the prevalence of cancel culture in Sweden but I, I I've written on this for a long while and many of the cases that was in the documentary ori- originates from a book I wrote together with uh, Anna Corinne Windham who worked at one of the uh Uh, like governmental agencies that have been uh, that was uh, empowered to lead the gender mainstreaming and uh, um, basically the, the it's 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 similar to uh, how you implement critical race theory in, in United States and they are the ones who were empowered by the government and so in Sweden what's been interesting when it comes to academic freedom is that uh, it's led from the top it's not students who are protesting that are driving the change it's the political level and the the bureaucracy and the academics themselves and if you dig into it i thought that when when i started researching it i thought that i would find radical students but what you find in sweden is that many of the students in sweden are actually more right wing than they used to be yeah and and many of the students that are protesting are protesting like i found one woman a young woman who looked like one of these TikTok videos of angry feminists who are angry in uh, who are triggered or something you know like a meme she had uh, short hair uh, like dressed like a hippie and 20 years old but she was actually and i i heard this in uh, an audio recording that some another student had done she was arguing that i have a right as a student to read my uh like the cultural heritage when i read philosophy you have don't have the right to politicize this subject and then there was an old male white male professor who argued like a like the woke students of the united states so to speak and the campus the campus is there and he was defending it on progressive values that they were replacing hume with uh David Hume uh, with uh, like a more unknown uh, female philosopher just because of representation. Yeah. Uh, so so this is a in in Sweden the the cancel culture is not as prevalent but you don't ha- need to have it in Sweden because it's the universities themselves that are doing it. Well it's it, the idea that middle-aged liberals are basically driving a lot of the change doesn't surprise me we have a we have many similar cases in the UK where students on the one hand say they want to be exposed to different ideas they want to have the debates i can tell you i've been teaching for 20 years students are not snowflakes mm. students want to have a serious discussion there is a a visible minority who you know see themselves as kind of progressive culture warriors and 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 activists and 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 that's certainly true but the vast majority of students actually are intellectually sophisticated and capable of analyzing different perspectives but what you mm. often find is it's 50 60 something baby boomer graduate liberals who for whatever reason decide that because they're sitting on committee xyz that suddenly it's really down to them to kind of lead this revolution and they decide that we students cannot possibly be exposed to speaker xyz because that speaker has voiced offensive views. I just like like being in favor of Brexit. <laughs> well, that's I mean that's one. I mean questioning gender identity is another. Yeah. Um ad- offering a nuanced view of Britain's empire and the legacy mm. of Britain's empire. Um you know all of these sorts of ideas um you know which which are you know I would argue acceptable legitimate mainstream points of discussion 
have become you know um, pariah topics within within the universities, especially the the more elite Russell Group Oxbridge universities. And the problem, mm. the problem, the reason I've campaigned so hard on academic freedom is basically because if universities do not protect and preserve the freedom of academics and students to engage and debate a wide range of issues, even when those issues challenge progressive goals and beliefs, then what is going to happen is we are going to see what America has seen, which is a sharp decline of public confidence and trust in the universities. That's why I've campaigned for academic freedom. That's why I've lost a lot of friends in the universities, because I've campaigned for that particular issue. Because I don't, to be honest with you, I no longer believe that universities will reform themselves. I no longer believe universities actually have an interest in reforming themselves. And I think they've lost sight of what their founding goals uh, were to search for objective uh, truth, to expose Mm. students to a wide range of ideas and perspectives and to develop new generations of critical thinkers who can go into our polarized societies with a familiarity of the different views and perspectives that people hold. Now, if that makes me Mr. Unpopular in the universities, to be honest, I don't really give a shit. I just mm. want our institutions to do what they were founded to do. And well, I find it heartening that you have that, uh, you can hear the fighting spirit in you because I've, I've interviewed so many academics in Sweden uh, and Many of them are in a very secure position. They have tenure. They are professors. They are uh, first in their field, or uh, they're they're great academics with a great reputation. They have so such a secure position, and they are very critical and they uh, about how um, the academic freedom is not respected in their certain fields or in the university, and they have a lot to lot to tell. But then, in the end, they don't want to come forward. Uh, and they are too scared, um, and they want to be they want to be anonymous. And sometimes I just feel like, okay, so why am I? Uh, I'm not even an academic. I, I mean, I, I went to university, and I I I, uh, I I am in favor of academic freedom. But why should I fight this war uh, and uh, and take hits if you are not willing to come forward? Uh, even though, of course, I do understand that they they have a lot to lose. But just just on that point, I mean, you know, every time there's a debate on the BBC or Radio 4 and it, you know, basically we're hauled up to discuss whether or not we should be promoting academic freedom. I will always get 10 to 20 emails after those media appearances from professors, senior lecturers, uh, students uh, saying how wonderful it is that you're defending academic freedom. We don't feel like we can do that. You know, we're terrified, we're scared, often junior academics who are thinking about whether or not they're going to get promoted and often senior academics thinking whether or not people are going to be nice to them in the common room uh, and at at high table. And, you know, I'm talking about some of the country's most well-known leading professors um, who have reached out and said they share exactly the same concerns. They think the universities are killing themselves. Uh, Mm. They don't think they're serving... Uh, the students and they feel that they are constantly self-censoring in seminars and lectures uh, and lectures and I you know I sort of 
always leave those debates with two things in my mind. One is um, what a depressing environment we've created whereby some of our brightest minds feel that they cannot speak up on these issues. But secondly, and I'll be completely honest with you, it also leaves me feeling somewhat frustrated mm. that more people aren't speaking up because, um, you know, what a way to live your life. You know, what a way yeah. to live your life thinking much more about um, social status and um, uh, professional preservation than actually um, pursuing um, a worthy, valuable, important goal in society, which is ensuring that we don't lose one of the things that makes our society so special to begin with. And and that's where sometimes I find myself, you know, maybe on the darker, in the darker moments, losing patience um, and respect for some of my colleagues, because I do think, you know, ultimately, historically, we have been here to advance and promote certain arguments. And to hear vice chancellors and others at senior universities kind of gaslighting the entire country saying there is no real issue in higher education, you know, mm. is a joke, to be honest especially when, you know, we have, an, we have a big trade union for academics at UCU. Their own survey, their own mm. survey shows that one in three academics are self-censoring on campus. And then we find that the head of that union regularly appears on BBC and other television channels saying, nope, there is no issue here. This is basically made up by a right-wing government. You know, and it's just like, people are not stupid. Students are not stupid. Academics are not stupid. Um, mm. viewers are not stupid they can see you know that the political games that are unfolding and I just hope that it will change and I hope that the legislation that's coming through in the UK I was very reluctant to use the state to legislate on this issue but I just concluded universities won't reform themselves I hope that will start to make a difference I just hope we don't turn into America but I mean we've you know we've gone around the houses we've, <laughs> we've talked a lot of, about a lot of different topics yeah. I mean it has been great to talk um and to hear your views from Sweden, I'm sure this is the beginning of an ongoing conversation between us and 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 our and our communities. Yeah, it's been a, a delight to be on on your show, and uh, I hope to uh, invite you to Sweden sometime to pick your brain on uh, and show you around to some people on on the on a lot of issues, but uh, maybe especially academic freedom, where you've been. Uh, uh, it's inspiring to see that there's you're making uh, some form of headway uh, when it comes to that. So yeah, it's been, it's been great to be be on. Great. Well, we'll catch up soon, and please do check out uh, Eva's uh, subcast, and see you all soon.